If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is the World According to Zid podcast for September 29, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turns upside down. As is always the case, please check out my other podcast, the Individual One podcast about news related to President Donald Trump. You can find that at our website, www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. As has been the case for much of 2019, although this was never anticipated, this episode is going to be devoted to the never-ending saga of the Leaving Neverland controversy, the so-called HBO documentary, actually a fantasy film about accusations involving Michael Jackson and sexual abuse. And yesterday, uh, I spent most of the day in Hollywood at the premiere of a brand new documentary, which uh, intends to combat at least some of those allegations, as well as the original allegations against Michael Jackson. It's a movie called Square One by a filmmaker by the name of Danny Wu. It was very, very good. I'm going to talk about that with uh, Taj Jackson and Charles Thompson, as well as many other things related to the allegations against uh, Michael Jackson. But first, I want to play an interview that I did with Michael Jackson's criminal defense attorney, Tom Mesereau, the the great Tom Mesereau, who uh, was his attorney in the 2005 criminal trial where Michael Jackson was acquitted of all charges. Uh, this was an interview done with Tom Mesereau immediately after the film Square One ended. This was a tough interview for me to get because I was sitting right next to Tom during the film. So as soon as the film ended, I said, hey, Tom, what are your thoughts? And here was his reaction. Tom, we just got uh, through watching the premiere of Square One, and I'm curious what your reaction to it was. It's a fabulous film. It is high quality. It was carefully investigated. The evidence was carefully looked through. It was condensed in a very professional attempt to find the truth, and it tells the truth. Michael Jackson was not a pedophile. He never should have been put through what he was put through, starting with the case in 92-93. And I commend Danny Wu and all of his people for the fabulous job they did, and I can't wait to hear this circulating through society because we live in very, very biased, troubled times. Michael Jackson was never a pedophile, never should have been accused as such, and his life was destroyed by greed, by people without integrity, by people without a conscience, and this film starts the road back from some of the recent developments which have been very troubling. 
Wow, that's a powerful statement coming from you, his criminal defense attorney, obviously in the 2005 acquittal. Was there one portion of the film that you thought was most powerful? Well, I, I, th- I think all parts were powerful because they tied together very well. And the producer, uh, Mr. Wu, obviously wanted to put, present things in a logical, careful, coherent way. He did a tremendous job in showing the truth. It's not a scattered film. It's not a film that, res- that, that revolves around passion. It's a film that re- revolves around the facts and the truth and logic. It is a fantastic film. The part that I found <clears throat> most powerful, because it's always been a point of confusion for me, was the settlement with Jordy Chandler. And what I found interesting is that when you see the timeline and you, you see even just the family tree and everything placed in its proper order... It's actually quite understandable how that all happened. Well, <clears throat> when I appeared first, uh, the first time I appeared in the criminal case in Santa Maria, California, I gave a statement <clears throat> that addressed that issue. And I made a statement because it was clear that many members of the public were troubled by that amount of money. The feeling was nobody would pay that amount of money if they were innocent. And the fact is, Michael Jackson was the most famous gifted entertainer perhaps in world history. Michael Jackson could walk anywhere around the world and make a fortune at that point in time. His advisors and lawyers told him, this is a drop in the bucket and the bad publicity. It's a, it's a sound investment. And he listened to them. They didn't write the check. He did. And he later regretted it. He told me, it's the biggest mistake I ever made. I should have fought that case like I'm fighting the one with you, Tom. And I wanted to make clear that this was not something that he did willingly. He did it for many reasons. One, business-wise, and two, if you look at the Bashir documentary, he makes a statement. He says, I didn't want to put my family through an OJ-type case. So there are many compelling reasons why Michael Jackson did this. He was advised to do it. He wrote the check. The advisors didn't. And unfortunately, it was a big mistake. Tom, as always, well said, and always good to see you. Thank you. Same. Good to see you. (laughs) We'll see you soon. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. All right, now back uh, live in the studio and joining us now to discuss this and many other things related to it are two guests we've had on the podcast before. Uh, we happen to have a confluence of events that allowed uh, both of them to come into studio today. Uh, one has come quite a long ways uh, to be a part of this. Uh, he is Charles Thompson, British journalist who's been on the program before. Charles, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Speak a little bit. You come all the way from Great Britain. You should speak at least a little closer to the microphone. Okay. There, there we go. <laughs> so, uh, and also joining us is uh, Taj Jackson. He is the nephew of Michael Jackson, an entertainer of his own right, and a guy who is working with Charles Thompson on a film uh, that also is related to this entire issue. Taj, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Taj. All right, uh, let's talk a little bit, bit first about uh, we were all there yesterday uh, watching this documentary. Um, Charles, you were one of the stars of, of this film. What was your assessment of the of the documentary i thought it was very good um i was a bit worried because um i found out like four days before the premiere that my interview had been used to form the narration of the film and i thought oh god so if people hate it that's all good that's gonna bounce back (laughs) on me you know so (laughs) but i was very very pleasantly surprised considering how quickly it was turned around danny made this film in maybe two months or something um with like zero budget and what he produced was so professional and so compelling and as tom said it's it's very coherent it's very um logical in the way it lays out the evidence and the timeline and i thought it told the story fantastically it's 
possibly the best that story's ever been told to date. Taj, uh, before I ask your direct uh, uh, opinion on the film, and I know you also like it, I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about Tom Mesereau, uh because I think it's important that people understand and we, you and I discussed this in a different way the first time we did a podcast and interview when Leaving Neverland first came out. There's a great misperception about this concept of a Jackson family machine. And I, I think that people presume that, well, Tom Mesereau is like still being paid by the estate and that he's spending his Saturday uh, watching this documentary film because it's part of his job or something. That's completely a false. I mean, Tom had no real reason to be there. He's not being paid by the estate. His, the acquittal happened 14 years ago. He's a very busy guy. He could be doing whatever he wants. And instead, he's spending, by the way, there were several films before this film. He spent a lot of time there. He wasn't showboating. He, he really just truly believes in Michael Jackson's innocence. So I'm curious if you could just kind of uh, further that thought. Yeah, I mean, you said it best, but I think with Tom, you know, Tom's the man of integrity and he he fights for injustice and I think the thing is is that he saw with my uncle how the media treated my uncle and how, you know, the narration is and I just our family so respects Tom because yes, he's not on any payroll, magic payroll or whatever. He's doing this on his own time is, you know, his own dime and everything like that in terms of getting to where he needs to get to the interviews that he's done. And, and we're just so grateful for them because he doesn't need to be doing this. As you said, it's 14 years later and it's, but Michael Jackson wasn't just a client to him. I think that's the, that's the thing that is important. I think the important part to me is, well, too, is there is no Jackson machine. And then with regard (laughs) to, uh, as you unfortunately know so well, uh, but, but most importantly, I think a lot of people just presume, well, a high-profile attorney, they represent that person regardless of whether they're actually Mm -hmm. guilty or not. And absolutely that happens. But Tom Ezra, and I've gotten to know Tom pretty well over the last five years that I've known him. We've done several interviews together, met. uh, He's he's helped me on on the Penn State uh, Paterno-Sandusky case. Uh, and and this is a guy who truly 100% believes yeah. in, in Michael Jackson's innocence, yeah. period. period. Uh, this is not an issue of reasonable doubt. Exactly. And I have to say, and this might be the greatest compliment to uh, the movie we saw yesterday, I, uh, and you know this, Taj, because, you know, when we first met, I was still in the skeptical mm-hmm. category. I, after this whole Leaving Neverland uh, fiasco, uh, it has driven me much more towards Michael Jackson's total and complete yeah. innocence. And But I was still, before yesterday, I was probably at about 98%. Mm-hmm. I'm now at 100%. Yeah. I'm, at, I'm at 100% that Michael Jackson never sexually molested anybody. Uh, and I feel incredibly confident about that. Mm-hmm. And it's largely because I, I had a few pieces of the puzzle that still... Yeah. Didn't quite fit. I'm a guy like Mesro and I get along very well because we think similarly. We're very logical people. And I I need all the pieces to fit for me to feel totally confident. And the part of the film, as I referenced in my interview with Tom there after the film was over, that fit all the final pieces to me was the timeline of the settlement. Uh, did you have the same kind of reaction? I mean, I know you obviously are, we're already in the 100% innocent yeah. category, but but could you give us your thoughts on that? No, and I think that's what Danny did so well was that because that is the, like the lingering thing. That's the thing that when um, when Leaving Neverland first came out, when we would give our facts of why this was not true, p- 
people's reaction would always be, oh, what about the settlement then? You know, that was always the go-to, you know, kind of trying to be a mic drop, you know, for them. And so I'm so happy this was addressed because we, well, we, we knew what was the truth in that way and what, you know, in terms of my uncle having pretty much his back against the wall. But I think he laid it out, Danny laid it out so well that I think it's so easy to follow and see the course of events and see the players that were involved in it. And he did, it. as as um, Charles said, very, he turned it around very quickly in that way. And I think it's, this is something that's going to be so needed because it is going to fit the puzzle piece in terms of it's the missing pieces that you know, that need to be there and addressed. And it's in video form, so it's it's even better. People well, don't have to read it. And Charles, uh, maybe you can expand on this further, but uh, the, the I was also frustrated watching the film because it, it was one of the, a classic example. The settlement issue is a classic example of something that I believe is emblematic of our entire broken news media, which is you can make the allegation – uh, certainly a sex abuse allegation or the allegation of, hey, Michael Jackson paid $15 million to somebody. That means he's guilty. You can do that in a sentence. Mm-hmm. Destroying that allegation takes literally a half hour of uh, a video with all sorts of facts and timelines and interviews and what have you. Um, talk to As a journalist, talk to us about how frustrating that is, because I've dealt with this in my my own life and the battles I've fought, where the truth is far more complicated than the lie. But the lie can win in this era because we don't live in an era where context and truth really matters. Yeah, I think it's always been a problem, particularly with tabloid media or with um, uh, television media, uh, because in a television report, you know, in a, in a magazine, you can write a 5,000-word feature. On TV news, you've probably got three minutes to tell your story. At best. <laughs> yeah, so if you're uh, trying to tell a complex story in, in that window, that's often very difficult, and it often is not achieved. Um, you saw it in the trial itself, the 2005 trial, where somebody would come in and would make allegations, and those allegations would be splurged out all over the papers and all over TV. And then Tom Mesereau's cross-examination might take five hours. And that would be a very meticulous cross-examination where he would piece by piece take out little bits of their story. And as a storyteller in court, you you can't tell your story to the jury until your closing argument. So what you're effectively doing is you're lining up your evidence so that when you come to sew the case together at the end, you you tell the jurors and you may have noticed that I picked out this part and I knocked out that part. And what this means when you sew it all together is that the whole story fell apart, but you can't do that. Uh, during an examination in front of a judge, you have to wait till the end of the case. So unless the ju- uh, the, the journalists are paying very close attention, then they often miss the way that the case is Wait a minute, journalists? Journal- who are these journalists of which you speak that pay close attention? Because I, I, I've, I've not met one of these. Yeah. Well, you, there weren't many at the trial. Could you point one out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at the trial, the, uh, the press was just appalling. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've I've spoken to Linda Deutsch at length, who was one of the only journalists who covered it properly. The Michael Jackson trial, it was the worst experience of her entire career, which was like five decades as a court reporter. She said it was just a bunch of idiots and bullies and people that were trying to get rich and famous off of covering the case. And the the media coverage was appalling. It was terrible. And it was similarly bad back in 94 when the settlement happened. You know, the the settlement, and admittedly it's a complex issue of the civil versus the criminal and why you have to settle the civil because otherwise it can negatively impinge on the criminal. But 
Um, nonetheless, the media should have explained that because somebody's life and reputation were on the line and they didn't explain that. Very, very few media explain that. I was doing some research recently. I found maybe two or three media outlets in the whole of the Western media that actually explain the reason for the settlement. And everybody else just got it wrong. So Michael settled the civil case, the civil case. And the next day, the British press were writing, Michael Jackson has bought off the American justice system. Mm-hmm. Well, the grand jury was still going on. He hadn't done anything mm-hmm. to the justice system. The, the criminal case was still ongoing. He'd settled a civil case. So either they didn't understand, in which case they're incompetent, or they did understand and they were lying. So it's not a good choice you know (laughs) either way is bad and and as tom mesero points out it was a mistake i mean it clearly was a mistake in retrospect but it was a mistake that at the time i now can understand because in in the best way i can explain it and todd you tell me if this is a good way to do it but in in as short a period of time as possible you have to understand that this man is ridiculously rich so his his uh $15 $15 million is not a normal person's $15 million. That's number one. It's not even close to a normal person's $15 million. Number two, well, the way I look at it is he paid about $15 million to avoid having to go through a civil deposition that, one, would have been embarrassing as all get out. I mean, this is a guy whose time is valuable. I mean, he, you know, he's paying $15 million to avoid an enormous embarrassing headache. But more importantly than that, he's also paying $15 million to avoid giving a criminal prosecution a heads up on what his defense is going to be and enabling them to change their prosecution based upon what he says. And that sounds like, oh, come on. No, 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 no. I I am someone who uh, is a big believer that in in these kind of cases, dates and places are everything. And as soon as he gives where he was on any particular date or whether he was at a particular place or whatever, now the prosecution can craft their case around what he has already said under oath. And they they did in the 2005 trial. If if you needed the evidence, they did that. They, um, They discovered that he had an alibi in the 2005 case, and then they changed all the dates on the charges. they changed the dates on the charges. Right, so what I have found is most of these cases, and I I truly believe we saw this in Leaving Neverland, all these stories are reverse-engineered, and to reverse-engineer a story, you need him on the record, you need Michael Jackson on the record, because once you got him under oath, you can do whatever you want. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, crap, that was absolutely worth $15 million if I'm Michael Jackson. Does that make sense, Taj? Yeah, it, it does. You guys also have to remember, uh, remember that he was on tour during when the allegations hit. So he wasn't even at home. And he was – I mean, I don't want to say how much he made per show, but this – I don't want to sound egotistic, but this was was a drop in the bucket at, right. in that term. It might have been two or three shows worth of – Right. Whatever, in for his the headache, mind, for I the can headache totally to see away. where, well, crap, why wouldn't I do this? Why wouldn't I do this? But yeah. I can tell you that he was adamant about fighting it during the beginning in, in that way. And that's. I'm, I'm wondering, Taj, and this is something you and I have talked about before, but I was thinking about it on the ride home from uh, watching the movie last night, and it deals with the settlement. I have found uh, in defending a lot of different types of people in my career, um, mostly to my negative self-interest, that that innocent people are the most difficult to defend. Uh, And it it occurs to me that if there's a theme through from from the beginning of this whole thing all the way through uh, leaving Neverland, 
and we talked about this with Wade Robson, where where you guys, and I say you guys, meaning the the Jackson family, the the, the Jackson team. You guys have consistently, and I believe it's because you think Michael is innocent, have consistently not snuffed out or destroyed potential data points when they occurred, not realizing that over time they could create enormous damage. Do you agree with that, for lack of a better term, criticism? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we were always taught not to address certain things in terms of don't give it you know, legs or don't give it attention and stuff like that. And I think that is one of the reasons why my uncle has this false reputation in, in a way because the media ran wild for 20-something years spreading whatever they wanted to spread. And this year was probably the first year that the family was aligned in terms of, no, we got to defend this and we got to let the truth come out. Well, now there was no choice. Really, we got back against the wall. Right, really back, right. No. I mean, it, but for, for many, many years, from, from 1993, 94, all the way through Wade Robson going on the Today yeah. Show, there has been a lack of urgency. Yeah. You agree with that? Oh, 100%. Um, you know, it's it was more of the old school versus the new school. And and I say that in terms of my, my parent, Oh, well, my parent and my uncles and aunts, they just grew up a different way in that um, they grew up that if you ignore it, it'll go away. And that's not the case with social media now. And so they were kind of learning so that when this with Leaving Neverland came, they were OK. They, they had seen that this Wade character from 2013 popped up again. And it because I went after him in 2013 on Twitter and everything like that. And I was told to slowly back out because Damn. it was because no one was believing him and that so and I should have went in. It is it it is a tough debate. Yeah. And I understand both sides of the debate. And what I meant by innocent people being the most difficult to defend is they tend to think, well, the system will work. Yeah. People aren't gonna believe this. And I'm and I keep telling people you don't understand. The system doesn't work anymore, yeah. especially in this realm. And yeah. and the truth does not matter. And if you don't search and destroy immediately any fact, not just an allegation, but any fact that can be destroyed, you got to do it immediately. immediately. Because if it if it sticks, then people create a narrative in their head. And 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 because and I and I was I was uh, I don't want to call myself a victim, but I mean, lack of a better term. I was seeing the 2005 prism yeah. through the same okay. concept. I mean, I was an L.A. talk show host at KFI, and, and in my mind, the settlement, well, there's got to be something there. He has to be guilty, so therefore, this allegation must be at least somewhat credible. I agreed with the verdict because the prosecution was crap, but even then, I was like, well, they must just not have been able to prove it. He must have been able to get away with this somehow. Yeah. And, and so... He, you know, I'm somebody who you know likes to look at the facts and the logic, and I'm open to every other side. My gosh, people who aren't that way yeah. must have been. Well, of course, he's guilty. Yeah. He paid 15 million dollars. Exactly, yeah. and I, and and the interesting thing too is is overseas. When my uncle was overseas and we were with him, he didn't even realize what the American press, the damage that they were doing to his reputation. He thought he believed in. They would never believe this about me for everything that I've done, for all the charity that mm. I've done. For And slowly but surely, months after months, he was starting to get reports from people and people panicking, saying they're doing a number on your reputation. And I think that added up as well to it. I think he really trusted that his reputation, that people wouldn't believe it. And he, did not, he, he underestimated current affair and, and those kind of networks and hard copy that 
had a field day with it. And I think that was his, to his detriment. Now, I want to talk with you guys about what you're, the film that you're creating. It's partially why uh, Charles is in town. Uh, but a couple more things about uh, Square One. Yeah. Uh, my uh, antennae went up uh, <laughs> very strongly early on, early on in the film because there's a scene about uh, involving you, Taj, mm-hmm. and one of my least favorite people, uh, <laughs> a guy by the name of Jim Clemente. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Clemente is described by the media as uh, a former FBI profiler who's an expert in child sex abuse, and he has been um, someone who uh, has been very much on the Michael Jackson is guilty bandwagon. I got to know him because of his involvement in the Penn State Joe Paterno Sandusky case, which I want to talk about in a moment. But first, let's set this up with, I was amazed. I have no respect now for Jim Clemente, but I was amazed that of the clip that was shown involving you, mm-hmm. where Jim Clemente tries in an interview to claim that the well, that the idea that there was never any child pornography involving Michael Jackson is a myth because after all there's photos of Michael Jackson with his own nephew Taj that he described as essentially child pornography back when you were part of would you call it a boy band or I don't know what you want to call it but you, some people do <laughs> okay okay but you, you you were how old at the time I was 21 at the time oh wow you looked younger than that yeah, okay I, yeah thank you um, <laughs> yeah I was 21 at the time and and the funny thing about it is Jim got it completely wrong. It was my brother TJ that was in that photo. And oh, it wasn't even you? No, that wasn't even me. So, <laughs> so that shows right there. <laughs> That's so classic Clemente. <laughs> yeah, and so and 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 but what I was and you'll see with the clip in terms of if you watch the um, movie, which you everyone should. Um, I normally am more composed in interviews. I was re- really upset and angry, angry because. This is a memory that I have. I don't have a lot of memories, and I, I my ma- memories of my uncle are sacred to me. And now this guy has dirtied up this memory that was an incredible memory because I was always – we were at the Stranger in Moscow um, set, and that's when we did the photo shoot. And I was just like – I was so lucky to be there in a way. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's taking his break time to shoot a photo shoot with with us. And to be clear, this was a photo shoot for an album cover. It was a single cover, yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. And it, yeah, and, and – the way he describes it is like Michael was like pressuring us to do stuff and this and that. And it was quite the opposite. We we trusted him and we wanted to do something more edgy. And we knew he had the perfect people. He had – well, obviously he probably has the best photographers. He has the best makeup people, whatever. Right. And there's lots of people around. There's lots of people it's around. It's very public. I mean yes. this, is, this, is, this is – there's nothing – And we're proud un- of the pictures. Like that's the thing too. It's like – for, it's not like we ran. It's not like we didn't know what was happening. Like, oh my gosh, what, what was this or whatever? And there's no, there's nothing pornographic no, about it. No, it's it's absurd. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Well, on I, his face. I think the thing is, is just in terms of, you know, I, I mean, I don't know Jim at all or whatever. But it was the giddiness that bothered me more than anything. These people, it's like they lose all integrity, and it's about like a personal attack on Michael Jackson. Well, I do know Jim, okay. uh, and uh, so let me just take a second to talk about Jim. Mm-hmm. I, when I started in the whole Penn State Paterno thing, Jim got involved because the Paterno family hired him to try to thread this unthreadable needle mm-hmm. that uh, Jerry Sandusky is guilty as hell, but Joe Paterno uh, did nothing wrong, uh, and it backfired horrendously, partially because 
Jim is not very good at what he does, uh, and he's usually a media darling. The media loves Jim. Yeah, uh, he's a consultant on this TV show, Criminal Minds, and um, and he's also uh, known as a sex abuse uh, victim himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a huge part of his persona. And I naively, and I hate myself for this, presumed, wow, he must really know what he's talking mm-hmm. about. And I presumed he was legitimate and credible, and so I had numerous exceedingly long conversations with him. I met him on the set of Criminal Minds where we got together because I was about to go on the Today Show to discuss the case. And I stupidly really respected where he was coming from. I was presuming he was a true expert. What I have since learned is that he doesn't know crap about anything and he's a blatant liar. He has lied about evidence, about uh, he has lied about me. He, he has claimed on Twitter that he and I never even met. Mm. Which I'm like, what? What, what are you talking about? We, we, you introduced me to the entire cast of Criminal Minds. I mean, this is this was an event he tweeted about at the time, uh, and he. One of the things that always struck me because we talked about in this because it was the same subject matter, the Jackson case, and he would brag to me, and I took it seriously at the time, that he was actually in the room when the infamous examination of Michael Jackson's genitalia took place, and he claimed that it was a match. And now I've learned that the the whole match theory is complete crap. And Charles, you tell me that that's not even accurate. Is it, Tell me Jim, why you... Jim Clemente was absolutely not in the room when that examination took place. It's one of many completely fabricated stories that he told about the Michael Jackson case. He touts himself as an expert on the case, but every time he opens his mouth, he gets it wrong. One of the stories he took... Well, he you know he touts himself as being an expert in body language. <laughs> so... He um, he said that because he's such an expert in body language, when he watched the Martin Bashir documentary and he saw the interview of Michael Jackson and Gavin Aviso sitting next to each other, he could tell instantly that Michael Jackson was sexually abusing Gavin Aviso. Well, this is interesting because on Gavin's own account, Michael Jackson had never sexually abused him at that time and did not do so for another year. So Jim Clemente's body language expertise is at odds with the, the, own, the, the accuser's own story. Um, and then he also claimed that uh, during the 2005 case, Gavin Arvizo gave an accurate description of Michael Jackson's genitals, which is a complete and utter fabrication. He never, not only did he not give an accurate description, he didn't give a description. He said he'd never seen Michael Jackson's genitals until he forgot that story and then said he had and then got the description wrong. He um, was on the stand and he said he had no idea that Michael Jackson suffered from vitiligo and he assumed that his whole body was white. Um, so that was his expertise on Michael Jackson's body. So, that, so Jim Clemente just gets it wrong all the time. I don't know anything about the uh, Paterno thing or uh, Penn It's State. the same story. It's not a thing in England. So I, you know. So, <laughs> but in terms of the Jackson case, which I do know very well, Jim Clemente gets it wrong every time he opens his mouth. It's just embarrassing. And then if you call him out on it, he just starts like abusing you on Twitter. Oh, he's a child. And, yeah, he's a he's, child. He's so childish, and he. I don't. I don't understand why he keeps inserting himself because he's not getting paid for it. He's just on Twitter doing I, it. I think it's it his claim to fame. I, himself. I think it's his original claim to fame. It's a huge part of his narrative that he has convinced people that he was part of this successful investigation mm. in the Michael Jackson. And well, it wasn't he, that successful because uh, he got unanimously acquitted on every I, count. I couldn't agree with you more, Charles. <laughs> but this is yeah, a guy. So. This is 
is a guy who <clears throat> loves fame. All right? yeah. I mean, you know, never trust anybody who who uh, purposely uh, goes bald. Um, you know, you, you know, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, when that's a that's a first red flag right there. Um, but but more importantly than that, I'm being facetious. But the the point here is, in my experience with him. He is a liar. I mean, and I say that with all sincerity. He is a flat-out liar. He has lied to me. He has lied about me. He is, uh, based upon what you're saying, Charles, he's lied about his experience. And he has been wrong about so many cases. I mean, Jean uh, he's The Jean Benet Ramsey thing, <laughs> how yes. he survives that. CBS sues. It gets sued because he claimed on national television in a multi-part Docu, whatever you want to call it, that somehow Jean Benet Ramsey was killed by her brother. My seven-year-old daughter knows that's <laughs> utterly impossible based upon the basic facts of the case. They settled the lawsuit. I know the lawyer that was involved. Clemente was up. Absolutely wrong, and yet Oprah Winfrey still takes this guy seriously. Yeah. This is the, and, the, and it's, this is important because this is the, the the level of person that has been used to destroy Michael Jackson's exactly. reputation. It's oh, not yeah. about the, truth; it's just about if they can spread the lie. And it's just a parade of these people. When you watch Square One, uh, you'll hear all about Victor Gutierrez. And there's another one, and, and the story of the Michael Jackson allegations is just a, a parade of these people who make their name and their career and their fortune off of touting themselves as experts on Michael Jackson, and yet everything they they do is either wrong or they've only got the story because they've offered somebody a hundred grand check, mm -hmm. or you know it's just rubbish. The, it's just been 25 years of complete and utter garbage and, um, and sort of uh, fraudulent individuals who pop up and and claim they're the michael jackson guy of you know after he died it was ian halperin remember ian halperin yeah. everything in his book turned out to be fabricated i mean it was just complete rubbish he claimed that he'd seen the contract for the this is it concerts and michael was only going to be on stage for 13 minutes or something the rest were going to be a body double his book sold tons of copies he was on every tv show it was all garbage all made up it's just one after the other, and now there's that loony from the and, National Enquirer coming in. What well, I, to Charles's point, and, and taking that uh, you know out of the, the direct and making it into the bigger picture, one of the things that uh, Square One really does a good job of illustrating, and this is an incredibly important point that I know Taj agrees with, people need to change their entire perception of everything that happens around Michael Jackson because he was a unique magnet and target <laughs> – I mean, literally unique mm -hmm. because of his fame and and his controversial nature and the fact that he, he was one of the – maybe the most famous person in the world at one point, not to mention enormously rich. The incentives around him, the perverse incentives around him truly were unique. You, you could have the biggest piece of crapola story about him – actually be worth enough for you to lie publicly 100%. that's that is an that is literally unique there're not many people that, that, that whose star is so bright that they create that level of a perverse incentive right 100% and and that's the thing it's like michael jackson was unique enough that Many people don't understand that exactly how it's, you explain it. You have that. to understand yeah. that. It's the essence of the whole case. If you don't understand that, then nothing else makes sense. But people are trying to – and I think part of the problem is that um, while he was always a huge star uh, while he lived, 
his star had dimmed a little bit by the time he died. He and you know that was it's just the natural course of events. And so I think people are are looking at him in the 2009 mm-hmm. version and not remembering the 1990s version or 1980s version. You see what I'm saying? And and that is devastating because you cannot perceive the events, for instance, of 1994 through the prism of 2009. It's a different world. Different world. And and also I think it was a lot of American media that, you know, because he was still – his albums were still selling millions and millions of copies around the world. And, you know, his um, singles like Earth Song, whatever, were number one everywhere except america you know for mm. weeks on weeks it broke records and it was just so americans saw the dimly lit michael jackson but he had just sold 50 right. you know concerts at in the OT- yeah in yeah. what in right. was an hour or something yeah. yeah well just um one other thing about the settlement while i think of it you were talking about it's a drop in the bucket in november or december of 1993 michael entered into an agreement with emi to administer his music publishing catalog and um that facilitated a seventy million pound pay, uh, sorry seventy million dollar payment into his bank account, yeah. and That's at the time point. his advisors were pleading with him just give Evan the twenty million. You've still made fifty million. It's found money. Just mm-hmm. give it to him. And he was saying, I'm absolutely not giving him anything. But when you place the the fifteen million settlement in the context of this is a guy who's literally just had a seventy million check go into his bank account, you start to realize the fifteen million. To settle right. is is really not a big one, deal. One last thing on on the movie, and this it's a good entry because I want to talk about Jordy Chandler specifically. Because yes. uh, Jordy Chandler was the first accuser, and I'm a big believer in any story like this. You've got to look carefully at the first accusation because any accusation at that is clouded by the first one. Because there's we see it constantly. There's always copycat situations, copycat, especially yeah. when there's money involved, and obviously there was huge money involved here. Not, and frankly, one of the, the the best pieces of evidence for Michael Jackson's innocence is that why the hell, after it was world known that he gave $15 million to Jordy Chandler, there wasn't a parade mm-hmm. of people uh, lining up for exactly. money. I mean, that should have been the case if he was guilty. But let's talk about specifically Jordy Chandler. Uh, so, so, And I was a little uncertain as to whether or not this was the right uh, way to go about doing this in the film, but... The the thread through the film is the testimony of a woman whose name escapes me. Do you Josephine Zoni. I knew you would know it, Charles. <laughs> um, uh, who, who was a student at uh, NYU uh, who meets Jordy Chandler <clears throat> back uh, around, just after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she knows who Jordy Chandler is because she's a Michael Jackson fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordy Chandler's name is not world-renowned at that time. And she gets to know him a, a bit. And she um, makes some statements about things that he did and said that are completely inconsistent with, uh, with him having been abused by Michael Jackson. And this is as an adult. This is after he separated from his crazy parents. Uh, he was, the, he was uh, the subject of a custody battle, which I think really was the, the seed that started this whole thing. Uh, and the film makes a good case for that. Uh, but uh, but uh, both of you, Taj first, w- what do you make of of her testimony? It's hearsay, yeah. um, and that's why I was a little concerned about it being so prominent in the film. But it, but she does come across as very credible to me. And most importantly, and this this is where I want to put take the ball down the field further. Where is Jordy Chandler? Yeah. 
and if you're Dan Reed, how do you do leaving Neverland without at least getting Jordy Chandler on board? His silence to me is deafening. Yeah. So what, what is your take on that? Um, exactly. And I, I, you know, Charles and I have different well, not different opinions, but we we would love to talk to Jordy because I I really do feel that this was something his father made him do, and that he was so young that he didn't have a say in it, in a way. And I think that he, from the stories that we've heard, that he did he is trying to like unload his conscience in a way. And so jo- Josephine was very credible to me in that, and I was a little worried as well because I'm like, okay, that's something from another person's account. But at the same time, I've been in that same situation where I've heard things come from Wade's mouth or I've seen Wade and my uncle interact. And those kind of experiences doesn't mean I'm lying because right. I, know, I know them as completely true. I saw them with my own eyes. So I gave her that benefit of the doubt. And I can say in square one, she's 100% credible you know, on screen. It doesn't look like she's doing it for anything other than getting the truth out there. And and the fact that Jordy has ran from everything when he's, you know, the, the prosecution has tried to get him shows me something. It shows me that he doesn't want to testify against Michael Jackson. Charles, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so an interesting thing about Josie is that Josie was um, part of the defense witness list for the 2005 trial because the prosecutors were trying to get Jordy to come to court and testify, and he refused. He actually fled the country and threatened to take legal action against them if they tried to force him to testify. So Josie's testimony was never needed because Geordie never took the stand. Um, but I do know Scott Ross, the private investigator, um, interviewed Josie, and um, he was kind of like the wall you had to get through to get on the witness list. And I know from extensive conversations with Tom and Scott that there were a number of people that they excluded from that witness list because they felt that they were compromised somehow. They were flaky. They changed their story sometimes. They might be making it up to get money or, you know, because mm-hmm. they thought they could sell an interview down the line. So for the, for her to have got through Scott and got onto the witness list, you know that Scott, who is a very diligent PI, he must have believed she was credible. And um, she makes the point on screen also of saying, if I was making this up to help Michael, then my story would be beefier than it is. Right. You know, I'm I'm not saying he told me that Michael never touched him. I'm not saying he declared Michael innocent, but I did overhear him making this comment and this comment. And these add up to my perception that he was suggesting that it was not true. So, And by the way, for the record, Jordy Chandler has never done anything to contradict what she has said. Absolutely. I mean, you would, think, you would think that that would be he – would, he's clearly heard about this at this point. Uh, yeah. uh, so you would think that it, he would say, what the hell? Mm-hmm. This oh, is yeah. ridiculous. He has not done that. He's given Dan Reed no interview. Yeah. Uh, as you've already alluded to, he did not testify in the 2005 trial. Every single thing that Jordy Chandler has done is – is a thousand and not done is a thousand percent consistent with a guy who was never abused by Michael Jackson and that his his dad extorted the money and he wants nothing to do with it. Yeah. And and Josie also was not the only witness who was there on the list to testify to Geordie making comments like this. Um, it ju- just happens that she's the only one that has been that's agreed to speak on camera for this documentary. But there were multiple witnesses on the witness list had Geordie testified that the defense had ready to call in and say that he'd made consistent mm. statements that 
that he'd not been touched. He didn't believe Michael was guilty. Now, Charles, the reason why you're in town here in Los Angeles is that you and Taj are working on another film uh, that's slightly different than than this uh, Square One. What can you tell us about that? Uh, well, um, it's no secret that back uh, after Leaving Neverland was announced and the ridiculous media firestorm um, happened that Taj uh, launched a crowdfunder to try to make a documentary um, to counter what, you know, the perception that's given by Leaving Neverland is not a fact-by-fact fact, uh, attack on Leaving Neverland. It's not, a, you know, to give an oppositional view on, on that documentary in particular. It's just to tell uh, the story from the other side. Uh, Geordi, uh, Arviso, Wade and Jimmy, and also just the wider context within which all of those cases happened. Um, and so uh, I guess maybe two months ago, Taj contacted me and asked, would I be willing to work on the documentary with him? And I, of course, said yes. Um, and so that's why I'm here. Yeah. And I think for me, um, the most important thing is I think a lot of this, the lies, the reason they've had leg, the legs they have is because my uncle was kind of so mysterious to people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that my film is going to address you're going to really get to know who michael jackson was what he stood for what were his insecurities and all that stuff because it's almost like humanizing him because to me he you know he was my uncle he was a human you know but to other people sometimes he was larger than life or he was just whether you want to say unique or a freak people, people, people call him whatever people they were want. groomed and i was one who was who were groomed into believing almost anything about him exactly. because he was otherworldly and some of that was good, and some of that was bad. Uh, but it, it fit. It was an incredibly easy narrative yeah. to sell to even rational people because you're thinking, well, he's so weird. Yeah. You know, the, the fake news about the oxy sleeping in an oxygen chamber to the, the elephant man, man bones. Yeah. So the, the narrative has been – and, it's, you know, I think one of the things with my uncle, he never fought those because he always thought, oh, well, they're talking yeah. about me, so it's great, you know. But now – we're, we're kind of seeing the repercussions of that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, where things are with leaving Neverland. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to get your reaction to them winning uh, an Emmy for Outstanding oh, yeah. Documentary. You know, it's knowing how things work, you know, because it's very similar to the music industry. It's like those things are kind of bought and paid for, especially knowing that HBO is one of the biggest sponsors and, or, right. of, of the Emmys and they have their record-breaking year. And, that and kind they, of and they have the most voters of any yeah, uh, station exactly well. yeah. and so it's like it's kind of rigged in that way it's almost like the father giving the son the award almost like you know that mm -hmm. bought it for the son and it's like oh you you know great job and it's and it bothers me because i'm hoping the public sees through that in a way just like the rotten tomatoes thing that i kept trying to pound <laughs> because someone brought it to my attention in terms of it mysteriously disappeared the the audience score disappears right before voting starts on the Emmys and it reappears after I, we make all this noise right after the voting ends in terms of, right. so they didn't want the audience score affecting voters because voters probably would have went and said, well, let's go on Rotten Tomatoes right. and look to see what the audience thinks. And so mm. all the, all they saw was a 98% critic score, 97 or whatever. And so it did influence the people that didn't Maybe we're on the fence and like, I don't know what to think. And so they see a 98 or 97. They're like, oh, OK, I'll vote for it. 
I'm wondering, uh, Taj, if the Emmy is emblematic of a, of a larger reality. About There's several larger realities. One is the insane media bias yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, against you, your side, or I guess our side at this yeah. point, since we're all in this at some <laughs> level. Uh, there, that's, that's one. But there's another part of this that um, I don't even know how much I can talk about publicly, but... Based upon my conversations with people directly involved in this, I have described what's really going on here as kind of a Game of Thrones, ironically enough, since uh, this is an HBO show, that what's really going on here has nothing to do with with Michael Jackson, that it's a Game of Thrones corporate battle that that, um, (laughs) the best way I can describe it is the 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 scene from uh, Untouchables with Sean Connery says uh, he puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue. Yeah, uh, and uh, and that that what HBO did with getting uh, uh, leaving Neverland the Emmy was essentially a further escalation of this Game of Thrones battle. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's just laughable though, to be honest. I mean, because it was it was one on creative merit, and I think. You know, just seeing that documentary with, you know, there's nothing creative about that in terms of it wasn't. Oh, it was a horrendous documentary. Yeah. Michael could be guilty as hell. And, it, and it would be an absurd. Yeah. It was an embarrassment yeah. Yeah. to documentary. Exactly. It's journalistically atrocious, you know, in, in every conceivable way. Um, there's no balance or objectivity. There's provable lies contained within it. Um, and it, there's it's just reshoots that were 18 months apart in terms of where they pretend to have the same clothes and almost. Yeah, it was yeah. shot like a fictional film, yeah, in, my, exactly. in my opinion. And I, I believe, Charles, do you agree that if the uh, lawsuit that the estate has against HBO is successful in getting the outtakes, that this whole thing's going to blow up? I think that may very well be the case. Yeah, I think what you're I think what will be very interesting also is if they are able to obtain under discovery or disclosure the uh text messages the emails i think that will be very difficult because of the journalist shield law um but if they're able to um then i think you will get a very interesting insight into what was going on behind the scenes because this is clearly a hatchet job uh with no journalistic integrity at all um and as you say, there is a bigger picture going on here, which is very difficult for any of us to talk about because, well, it just is. I, I, can't, I, can't, even, I can't even say, I can't even explain why, because, you know, there's not something you want to involve yourself in um, on any level, but there is something else going on, which... Are you saying that people we should all be to, concerned yeah. about starting our cars people, after this interview? Uh, people can read between mind. the lines, <laughs> right? But there is something going on. No, and I'm not a conspiratorial person at all. No, I'm an not. anti-conspiratorial person, but I believe that this this Game of Thrones uh, uh, analogy is accurate, and I hope that people will understand eventually once the, all the facts come out what I'm talking about. Now, let me play a little bit of devil's advocate okay. here, uh, here about uh, strategy, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm a veteran of these yeah. these wars. And um, and I've already alluded it a little bit to it with regard to uh, how difficult it is to explain the settlement. I don't think that uh, this is a winnable war on the facts, even though the facts are totally on our side. I mean, 100 percent on our side. We are no longer living in a world where facts mm-hmm. matter. And in this particular case, the allegation can be made in an instant, in a tweet. 
and defeating that allegation takes a two-hour documentary, which no one, which is not going to air on HBO, obviously, is not going to get, uh, you know, millions and millions of people uh, watching it uh, for free. It's not going to be, uh, you know, on free television um, in a way that will get a massive audience. And the media, there is no way to invest them in destroying this narrative. Mm-hmm. There's no way to do that. No. Uh, and so when I'm looking at this from the standpoint of how do you win, because I want, I want to, you guys are on the right side and you should win. Mm-hmm. In order to win, there are only two ways I see this happening. Uh, the first and easiest would be, uh, well, y- y- there's only there's five people that could cause you to win. Uh, if if Wade, James, their moms, or Oprah uh, re- reneged on their support for the film, you win. Okay, there's got to be one of those five people. Mm-hmm. So anything that doesn't work towards that happening in my mind is a little bit of a not a, I don't I want to say a waste of time because what you're doing is important mm-hmm. what Danny did is important what we've tried to do here on this podcast is important for what you and I have called holding the base yeah. okay holding the base of support your base is won mm-hmm. all right you won the base yeah. you you've already won your base the Jackson fan base and people who care about this are totally on board they've been amazing I am blown away by them mm-hmm. uh in every possible way. And I, I'm an expert on this because I have been in situations in the past where I have seen fan bases support my defense of somebody, and there's nothing like the Jackson fan base. I mean, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable, and they are substantive. They yeah. are not cult-like. No. I've seen yeah. a cult. I deal with the Trump cult every freaking day of my life. <laughs> this is not a cult. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is a group of people who truly want the truth out, and I, and, my, and I have enormous esteem for them. So you've won the base, Okay. How do you win the bigger picture? To me, the weak link in this is the moms. And the reason why the moms is the weak link is because the media can always rationalize anything a victim does. Doesn't matter. You can yeah. there is absolutely no way. It's in, literally impossible now mm-hmm. to pin a victim down and prove they are lying. Wade Robson is the perfect example of this mm-hmm. because my God, if yeah. Wade, my whole thing on Wade is if Wade is telling the truth, we might as well just throw out our entire judicial system. Yeah. It's, it is all irrelevant because yeah. this guy is the most easily discredited person I've ever seen in my life. So you're, so in lieu of the idea that you're not going to get uh, Oprah because she's invested and you're not going to get Wade or James, the moms are a different story because the moms don't get the same benefit of the doubt as a sex abuse victim. And I believe that that we've already proven the moms mm-hmm. uh, uh, don't believe Michael Jackson is a, a sex abuse uh, 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 pedophile. I mean, the, the Stephanie Safechuck's acting is ridiculous in the film, uh, and and Joy, uh, I, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I think to me the smoking gun of this whole thing of all the things we found about the film because of what i'm talking about the difference between a, a sex abuse victim and how they're treated and how the moms are treated to me the the girl the teenage girl from from your neck of the woods in great britain who found joy robson liking pro michael jackson facebook pages and then we, more important after wade has gone on the today show this mm-hmm. is after yeah. wade has gone on the today show she's liking michael jackson pro Facebook pages, and then most importantly, unliking those pages as soon as we start investigating it. That, to me, is the smoking gun of smoking guns that Joy Robson knows this is bullshit. 
and that she does not believe that Michael Jackson abused Wade. First of all, I, I talked a long time there, but no, what, no. You, what is your what is no, your? That's a fascinating, you know, um, insight because that's something that I, we didn't think about, or at least mm-hmm. I didn't think about in that way. Um, because I have memories of Joy, you know, I I have memories of Joy being at Havenhurst, you know, after my uncle passed and telling me firsthand that her biggest fear was losing contact with the family, you know, and so I have different memories of Joy. You know, I I saw her at Christmas probably the last two uh, two Christmases in terms of um, because of a family friend. And so I I think in my heart of heart, I think she is trying to support her son. You know, I don't think she fully believes it, but she, I also think that she has, she's always been in love with Michael Jackson and that's not something that we've made up. That's something she used to tell people around her that, you know, and in my opinion, joy is the weak link. If if I was targeting somebody for them to flip on this, it would be Joy Robson, uh, and I don't I I don't have a, a a silver bullet on how to get that done, but I mean my understanding is she still lives here in Southern California. Uh, you know, there there could be things that could be done yeah. to uh, to you know to uh, I'm not saying pressure or, or intimidate. I'm saying hey, look, Joy, look what you've done here. I mean, this is really damaging. Don't you care about the truth? I mean, do, do you, Charles, do you have an opinion on whether this strategy makes sense as far as, as how you actually win in this battle? Do you understand, um, my, do you understand my concern yeah. that the facts no longer matter and that you need an easy headline? You need mom of, of leaving Neverland accuser says Michael Jackson never did it. That's what you need. Yeah, I, I do understand what you're saying. Um, I think the likelihood is slim unless they lose their lawsuit because I think the carrot of hundreds of millions of dollars may be um, difficult to overcome because we certainly don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to offer in lieu. Um, So I think what we're hoping to do is we accept that particularly in the current Me Too climate, this battle will be difficult to win because, as you say, there is if this is the quality of evidence on which we are to assume guilt, then the entire judicial system is dead. Um, you know, you have one guy in Leaving Neverland who is uh, who recalls being at Thanksgiving with Michael Jackson in Los Angeles when he was actually in Australia. He recalls being abused by Michael Jackson at an award ceremony he did not attend. He recalls being abused by Michael Jackson at ages 10 and 11 in a building that did not exist until he was an adult. And all of these things are rationalized by the other side. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just trauma. Right. And it's like, well, if you are an innocent person who has been falsely accused, what can you do? What can you actually bring to the table to prove your innocence? If he he wasn't even in the country, he was in Australia, or the building didn't actually exist, if that is not sufficient to impeach your accuser, no innocent person can ever be acquitted again. And so um, in that climate, which is the climate we're in right now, this battle is going to be very difficult to win. But I think what we're aiming for is what are people going to be looking at 50 years from now? And what we want to try to create is something for the ages which will outlast the sensational and will be um, definitive 
100%. So we want yeah. to create something that will be definitive. I'm all for creating a record. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, a large part of my life is creating a record <laughs> on things I know I'm going to lose on. Uh, that somewhere down the road, maybe someone's going to take a look at. I get that, and I'm not saying don't do it. I'm, I'm saying that that's all great. But I'm looking at this having having uh, my own uh, wounds from past battles. Looking, okay, this is the way. The only way, the path to victory. The path to victory is one of those five reneging. There's another path to victory, which I uh, suggested to Taj the first time we met, and I suggested to the estate lawyers, and he really liked this idea. But to my knowledge, nothing has happened, and I don't want to talk about it because it would blow up the idea if it ever actually yeah. occurred. But you agreed, Taj, that yeah. that was an interesting idea. It was idea. an interesting idea. I, I think the problem that I'm having is just that I don't have the same faith in human beings that are offered money or that have money at stake, and that's. The but thing. if Joy could be convinced that she's never going to get that money, I think she might flip back. There's always a way, though, with the media and Michael Jackson. There's always a way, whether it's not this time around, you know, selling a story there. There's always a narrative that she can sell, and there's always a country that she can sell it to. I mean. All mm-hmm. like look at Bianca and all these the maids that from back then that have been yeah. proven line. They're still selling stories. Yeah, Adrienne is still selling stories today. She's and still making the after living. After she's been exposed yeah. as a perjurer and, and a thief and uh, it a doesn't fraudster matter. The truth and a doesn't liar. matter. Yeah, they just continue to pay. They know that right. she's full of crap, and they they buy her stories anyway. Let, let me throw one other thing out at mm. both of you guys um, because. Because I have so little faith that facts matter, and because I don't believe that anyone's going to renege against their self-interest, any of the five people that I, that I mentioned, uh, it has occurred to me that uh, the only way you win this is if you go over everyone's heads, that you just completely ignore the actual factual record, and you play to the estate's strengths. And I don't know if you've heard me uh, uh, talk about this before, but... And maybe this isn't the right year to do it. Maybe it's too soon. But to me, the estate has a boatload of frickin' money. There is one moment all year long in the United States where everyone is focused on one thing. That's the Super Bowl. Michael Jackson famously did the halftime show of the Super Bowl. I believe that a halftime commercial at the Super Bowl commemorating Michael Jackson's Super Bowl appearance here in Los Angeles, 1993, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, 1993. I knew you would know, Charles. You know everything. <laughs> um, uh, 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 I believe if well done, it would blow up Twitter. People would go bananas. It would remind everyone of Michael Jackson, the superstar, instead of Michael Jackson, the alleged pedophile. And from then on, for it would wipe clean going forward any concerns about this in a huge portion of the population, and it would have nothing to do with combating allegations of child abuse. You've got the money. The state has the money. Uh, and I, I would presume if done properly, the NFL would accept it. What do you what do you make of that idea? Well, you said the NFL would have to accept it, and I think that's where public pressure would come into play. And I think, you know, what I've learned is that when it comes to my uncle, things aren't fair. In that aspect. I mean, and ideally, I would love to hear that and be like, okay, well, that's, you know, they'll play fair and all that. But I can hear the outcry. I can hear people yeah. complaining. It and won't then- even be public pressure. It'll be media. It'll be manufactured media pressure. That was why Michael got banned from so many radio stations, yeah, albeit briefly taken after off leaving Neverland. It was not and- a public thing. The public was saying, put it back on. 
Yeah. You know, but it was the media manufacturing this ridiculous fake controversy, which was all just this microcosm of middle class white woke journalists all <laughs> writing for each other. You know what I mean? They're, and it's like, who's outraged? They're all just quoting each other about how outraged they are. It's like, where are the actual people? If you look on Twitter at every opinion poll, he's winning it. But an even just, better indication, by the way, is look at Dan Reed's Twitter feed. He never gets more than you know a dozen yeah. or so retweets. Oh yeah, no one cares. I know that's so funny, and he's really furious as well that, about the backlash, and he he really can't take it at all. It's so funny, but um, yeah, he gets like no Twitter engagement. He gets like right. three likes on his posts. Right. You know, <laughs> the, the thing with Dan that bothers me is that at first I thought he was just naive, like he was taken in terms of in a way, like maybe he believed it, but now he started to learn the truth but the more he talks and the more interviews i feel like he sh- helps structure it and and the narrative well and the he's lies. their he is their literal pr yeah. spokesperson that's what i mean the I've more never, the more he talks I, it's I've like, ne- i have never heard <laughs> of a documentary filmmaker being the person who is there to explain the inconsistencies yeah. in their in their persons no that's not the way this works you go back to the source J- hey james what about the train station? Yeah. Hey, hey, Wade. You know what about Grand Canyon? That's that's not your job, Dan Reed. Exactly. And yeah. and, and what I find what I find uh, from a psychological perspective fascinating is that um, Dan Reed is defending his film as if it is a, fec- a fictional film. Like yeah. like for instance, um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Star Wars because I think there's a lot of continuity issues in the in the uh, in the progression of, of Star Wars, and it's it's almost like he's George Lucas mm-hmm. defending why uh, you know um, Luke Skywalker uh, doesn't know that uh, uh, that uh, uh, the princess is his sister. I mean, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it's all part of his imagination. Mm-hmm. Like, so in other words, if he can explain it. It's inherently legitimate because it's all part of his own that's, imagination. Yeah, you see what? Well, the the other thing that's fantastic about the way he defends himself is that he's like Mr. Magoo because he tries to avoid tripping over the flower pot and then falls in the fish tank. You know what I mean? So he like every he clearly has not done much research about these guys. He knows even basic stuff like what's in their witness statements. He, he doesn't seem to care. Yeah, he doesn't know. It, it it's doesn't like, matter to him because it's not part of his fictional film. It's so, so bizarre because it's like he can't – it's like he's got blinders on, right? So he can't – anything you tell him. So if he defends the train station thing by saying, oh, no, that's because Jimmy was still being molested in 1995. And you go, well, under oath in his witness statements, he says he was never touched after 1992. He just ignores that. So it's like it's almost like his film now supersedes <laughs> the sworn testimony. So if you're going to him no, Dan, your film directly contradicts the sworn testimony. They said one thing under oath in their testimony and then they said something else in your program. He's like, "No, this is very clear. It says it in the program. It says it in the program that he was still being molested." And you go, <laughs> right. "No, but that's not the point. The point is what he says in the program right, is not what he said." Right, but if you're George Lucas and it's Star Wars, what's in Star Wars is all that matters because, Exactly. But, yeah. but, but Star Wars is fictional. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, I think you guys will get where I'm going with this. Yeah. All right. Um, we're, we're running out of time here. So give me your last uh, thoughts, synopsis, where you think we're headed with all this. I'll start with you, uh, Charles. Where do you, where do you think this is all going? Okay. Firstly, Square One is, uh, is out next Saturday for free on YouTube, and I believe will also go on to Amazon Prime. So definitely check that out. 
Um, in terms of what's coming next, we're starting work now. I'm here for the first week of work, and uh, we're moving in a positive direction. And um, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, so you'll have to ask Taj. Taj <laughs> well, but, but do you think – I mean, I'm looking bigger picture, though. Do, oh, okay. you, do you think Michael Jackson a- ends up uh, w- winning this battle? I think that 100 years from now he may have won. I think a year from now we may not have won. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just the same as many people throughout history. Michael compared himself often to Jack Johnson. I'm viewing this very much through the Jack Johnson prism. It, ten years after he died, it still was, he still had not won 20 years. But 100 years later, we now have the books, we now have the documentaries, and we can see what really happened to him, and we understand. Um, and so I think we're... We're not looking for a quick fix. We we want to win the war rather than the battle, and um, and that's that's what we're attempting to do. Taj, uh, Charles, you said it very well. Um, I think that's exactly what it is. That I want people just to know who my uncle was. I think that's the thing that is missing in this equation. Because when you know someone or you feel that you know someone, you tend to. It's easier obviously to defend them but it's also easier to understand them and i think my uncle was one of the most misunderstood people in the world well i really appreciate you guys coming in uh thank you for the work that you're doing and being tireless in in defending the truth in this matter you both deserve an awful lot of credit uh, charles i i gotta ask how the heck do you know all of this i mean, I mean <laughs> it's a walking it's, 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 you are an encyclopedia of this case how how did that happen well, um, now we're going we to extend the show now. So now uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for well, a short answer. <laughs> okay, so I used to be like the de facto Michael Jackson correspondent for a newspaper in the UK called The Sun. I did that for a couple of years, and then I wrote about Michael for the Huffington Post for a while. So I have a history of covering Michael, and right. um, I, I do have a very in-depth knowledge of, of particularly the trial. Um, through my work back then. And then I went off and worked in newspapers and did nothing about Michael Jackson for the best part of time. But, yeah, so that's, that's where my knowledge base comes from. Well, well, thank you very much. You have a huge, as we saw last night, you have a huge uh, fan base. People people love the work you're doing. And, and Taj, uh, you've been amazing as well. And so uh, please keep in touch and, and keep up the great work. Thank you as well, John, you know, because I I know how it is to just get rocks thrown at you, you know, for defending, <laughs> you know, Michael Jackson. And, and it is, it's, it's a hard job to do. And you've never wavered from the truth in that way. And I appreciate it. So thank you. Thanks guys. Cheers. Two other uh, stories that I want to talk about before we end this episode of the world, according to Zig podcast, uh, one of which actually is somewhat related because it's under the realm of uh, false allegations and victimhood nation. Um, But it's astonishing to me, although not all that surprising, that it has gotten so little attention, especially since the story took quite an interesting turn. I'm I'm referencing a story involving a radio talk show host in New Orleans at WWL uh, radio station, which is a very famous uh, radio station in New Orleans, and the host by the name of Seth Dunlap. And it made news this week because Dunlap was planning on suing his station because his station's Twitter feed responded to a tweet. I guess they retweeted a tweet of his uh, asking whether or not it's because he's a fag and Dunlap is openly gay. And obviously this is an insanely inappropriate tweet, especially from someone's employer. 
And Dunlop was set, and there was a lot of media coverage around his plans to sue the radio station for having publicly tweeted a racial, not a racial, but a uh, obviously a homophobic slur, uh, the word fag, about one of their employees. And frankly, uh, my guess would be that if that was actually the case, that he would have one hell of a lawsuit against uh, his employer. Well, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, it now turns out that much like Jesse Smollett, you know who ended up sending that tweet from the station's account? Seth Dunlap himself. Seth Dunlap himself somehow, according to the radio station, got into the station's Twitter account and was able to create a fake lawsuit situation where this slur was used against him all so that he could contrive a situation where he could sue his employer. Now, what's interesting about this to me, there's several interesting things, but one is that if you Google this story, depending on how you Google it, you know, if you Google Seth Dunlap and, uh, you know, gay slur or something like that, you're, what you're likely to find is a whole lot of mainstream stories about the initial allegation against the radio station. What you're not likely to find is that many stories about the fact that we now believe there's evidence in the station. And, and let's be clear, the station would never publicly make this allegation against their gay employee unless they had really strong evidence that Dunlap did this. Because if 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 Dunlap did not do this, now they've just taken their damages. <laughs> the damages that they face in this coming lawsuit have just been exponentially increased. And they're, they can't be, you know, complete and total. I mean, radio people are dumb, but they're not that dumb. All right. So I'm going to just on the basis of the fact that they're publicly making the allegation and they filed a police report, I'm going to go and say, you know what? Uh, I, I believe that Dunlop likely was the cause of this original tweet. But the media doesn't like that narrative. They love the narrative of a radio talk station uh, tweeting out, either by mistake or somehow on purpose, a homophobic slur about, about a gay host. They like that. But they do not like this idea that, wait a minute, hold on. We've got a false allegation of homophobia that was contrived almost exactly like the Jussie Smollett case. And we have yet another example of false accusations being made by prominent people. This is somebody with something to lose. He's a prominent person in New Orleans, a radio talk show host, who is willing to lie and contrive a false allegation for money and to use his homosexuality as a shield. And to me, this is another example also of how we have become victim nation. This is the new American dream. The new American dream is to be a victim of an entity with deep pockets, especially if you're not really a victim. That's even better. If you don't have to suffer any real consequences, all the better. But the bottom line is the new American dream is being a victim 
of a deep-pocketed organization and having some political correctness protection, like being gay, so that the media will carry your water for you on this. And this, this is the reality on which so many of these false allegations is based. It is very much uh, what uh, I believe has caused the allegations against Michael Jackson to be uh, perceived as credible, especially in the news media. The same thing with Penn State and Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky. Similar situation with regard to Brett Kavanaugh. And the, 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 in the media's mind, the foundation of why they believe these allegations is, well, no one would lie about it. No one would tell a story that outrageous, no, especially not a prominent person. Bullshit. Uh, it happens all the time, uh, at least frequently. And, you know, my gosh, the fact that we know it, it's happening quite often tells me it's happening even more often in situations that we don't know about because it's so difficult to disprove these kind of things, especially in this day and age, especially when the media has no interest in disproving them. So I found the Seth Dunlop story to be uh, quite uh, important, fascinating, and illuminative of a whole lot of other things that are going on in our culture, none of which is good. Uh, I want to uh, end the show with uh, a bit of good news, although I'm going to still complain about it. (laughs) Because <laughs> that's kind of the nature of my life. But uh, it was a big week for my daughter, Grace, who is now seven years old. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Boy, that's, that is a long time ago, that clip uh, from Grace. So she was about uh, four years old at that point and, and totally different person than she is today. Uh, but Grace has struggled in school. Uh, she is an incredibly uh, charismatic and imaginative person as anybody who has ever heard her on this show before. She's done several interviews on this podcast, generally around her birthday and around Christmas. She's also done some uh, videos. Boy, she's, she is a big hit with the Michael Jackson fans, I can tell you that. Uh, you know, She did a video uh, mocking the Emmy Award for leaving Neverland. Uh, they got at least 50,000 views on Twitter uh, where she was playing with my uh, Emmy and pretending to give the Emmy for worst acting to the Robson and Safechuck families. Uh, and, um, and so she's, she's clearly not a dumb girl. She's very smart, but it doesn't translate to, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of the modern education system. She's not, you know, not big into, (laughs) big into structure. She's a, she is a creative girl. And, uh, this year, uh, the school year has actually started off particularly well, but my wife and I had no idea how well until we got a note Uh, notice from the teacher uh, about 10 days ago telling us that this past Monday, Grace was going to be honored as the student of the month for academic achievement. And we were like, what? What? Was there a misspelling? (laughs) Was this a mistake? Uh, Do we need a recount here? How how did this happen? Uh, And and we, we checked, and yeah, it was all, all legit. And there was a ceremony this past Monday. And, uh, you know, our understanding is that she absolutely deserved the award. And, of course, what's interesting is this is the, obviously the first student of the month of the year. So it's not like it's at the end of the year and they're just, you know, scrounging at the bottom trying to give out the awards to anybody who hasn't received one yet. And I'm fully aware that uh, student of the month and any award in our academic world is not what it used to be, right? I mean, we're, we're living in a, you know, not only victim nation, but we're living in a nation now where everyone gets a trophy. Everybody gets an award. 
But to the, the extent to, the, to, to which that has been the reality was quite disturbing even to me uh, when I went to the ceremony. Because, yes, she was the student of the month for academic achievement. But they now also have a couple of other student of, Mo- student of the month awards, like, for instance, uh, most improved or uh, most responsible. So there's, I think, like four people who actually get their certificates. You know, in theory, in the old days, the student of the month would have been for academic achievement, which is what Grace got. Well, so she's now she's now one of four people, which totally diminishes and dilutes the award, right? Because now she's one of four. You're not really the student of the month. If there's four other people in your relatively small class, I don't know how many, there's somewhere like 24, 25, 26 people in her class, something like that. So if you do the math, what obviously is going to happen is that by the end of the year, every single student will be honored in some way as student of the month, whether it's for the academic achievement or the most improved or uh, character trait of the month or most responsible, whatever it is, everyone's going to get one. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, I guess it's nice to for Grace that it's the first month and maybe it means a little bit more. But in reality, it means nothing because everyone's going to get one. And, uh, and that made me sad. Now, it didn't impact really Grace's view. Although I have to say, Grace's expectations for what the student of the month was going to be were probably a little bit uh, too high to begin with. Uh, This is a girl who has never played soccer in her life. And before her first soccer game, which was about a month or so ago, she actually drew a, a picture, a very detailed picture. She's quite an artist. She drew a picture of... Her in her soccer uniform being carried off the field by her teammates <laughs> as, her, as her vision of what her first soccer game was going to be. <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, this is going to be a disaster because expectations are everything in life. And if her expectations include her being carried off the field. Then, oh boy, we're really in for it. And needless to say, uh, Grace was not carried off the field in that first game. Uh, they even lost that first game. Uh, but since then, they've won every game they've played. So uh, soccer hasn't been a complete disaster, but there's been no carrying of Grace off the field in, in uh, joyous victory celebration. But anyway, the, the most important part of this is good news for Grace, and her school year is is off to a, a very good start, and we're very happy about that. Uh, once again, thanks to our guests, Todd Jackson and Charles Thompson, uh, and great work to them. Uh, and continuing to try to fight for the truth in that whole saga, which I'm sure we'll continue to cover in the weeks and months to come here on the World According to Zig podcast. This is always the case. I only ask two things of you. Number one, please make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. (laughs) Performance bedding? (laughs) Yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. (laughs) Well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) 
comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.